Welcome to the Hilltop United Methodist Church podcast. Hilltop is located in Sandy, Utah, 985 East, 10,600 South. Locals would say 106th. Our two worship services are at 9 o'clock and 10.30. Hope to see you this Sunday. God bless. Bye-bye. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 8, which happens to be one of my favorites, and it may be one of yours as well. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Last week, we looked at Job, and we looked at Job from the voice of Job. And, and we talked about his friends. We didn't actually hear any of his friends' dialogue. And I commented to you that Job's friends were friends I hope you never have. <laughs> they come in, and we have the advantage of having read the prologue. We know the prologue. We know what has happened. We know why Job is suffering. We have some insight into that. But Job's friends don't have that insight. And they show up, and they're... Their commentary to him is, you're here because you deserve it, you've sinned, and all you got to do is ask God to forgive you, and everything will be set straight. Now, asking God to forgive you is a good thing, but the dilemma you've got is the fact that they have bad, bad theology and the fact that they have bought into the idea that Job is sitting in that uh, ash pit with boils, scratching himself with shards of clay because he <coughs> deserves it, because he deserves it. And you and I know better than that. Job buys into that. Job buys into that theology, and he says basically, throughout Job 3 through 38, almost all of the dialogue in there that Job offers has to do with legalisms, a legal attitude. If I could just get a day in court, if I could just present my case before God, I would be acquitted, because there's not insufficient evidence for me to be punished like this because there is no sin. And that's a problem because that's not the way we, at least in our own eyes, in the 21st century, understand it. The righteous do indeed suffer. Once you get to the end of Job 2, God is silent from chapter 3 through verse 38. And we have here in this the first opening, the first passage of where God is going to speak. God will speak for about three chapters. We're not going to read all all of that. Now, as I read this, I want to invite you to move from a place of God is asking uh, perhaps Job, who the heck are you? Who the heck are you? I don't believe that's what's going on. 
I believe what's going on is, Job, my poor child, you just don't get it. You just don't understand the sheer magnificence of this creation. And I'm going to walk you through it a little bit. That's the way my take is on this. So uh, we're in uh, Job 38, and for those of you that have a bulletin there in front of you, you know what page we are in the, in the bulletin, but I'm going to try and read. I'm going to put Greg to the test here. We'll see how he does this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its faces sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that flood, a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water skin of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when the young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be God. Amen. A little bit where I was going to go back at 10.30 when we were talking a little bit about a dictionary from 1850. But the direction I want us to go and reflect on for a few minutes is, is what is it, how is it to be full of awe? for God's creation. And like I said, it's sometimes we can say that in our, of course you can't hear the hyphen, but awe, A-W-E, hyphen, full, awful. Full of awe for what God has done. Throughout the first 38 chapters of Job, Job is offering legalisms, he's offering rationale, he's offering insight as to why he's not guilty of what he seems to think he's guilty of, or being accused of. And God's answer here in this is for us to be able to see the magnificence of the creation. The creation is just beyond all of our understanding 
and how it is that we can, we can understand it. In the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, we began to talk about in this expansion of science that was going on, that God often could be found in those places that we did not truly understand yet. And it even had a name in that world. It was called God of the Gaps. God of the Gaps. Now, the question I would ask to you in, in our more enlightened 21st century viewpoint as opposed to the early part of the 20th century, if God is in those gaps, the more we learn, the more we learn, the more we learn, what happens with God? God gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's sort of what happened at the end of the 19th century, first part of the 20th century. We developed this attitude that God was our friend. God, we buddy God. We had gotten God to such a location that it was in those places that we did not truly understand. Then World War I came along and shattered that for many people. I mentioned to you a European theologian many times named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but there was a man about 10 years older than Bonhoeffer named Karl Barth. Karl Barth. If you were to ask Protestants who were the most, two most important theologians of the 20th century, Bonhoeffer would be in second place and Barth would be in first. And part of what Barth tried to remind all of us is, is that we can't put God into a box. We can't keep making God smaller and smaller and smaller. Rather, what he would say to us is we need to understand God in an infinitely large, in an infinitely grand, grand kind of scale. And as I hear this passage of where God is self-describing himself back to Job, I get that same sense. I confess to you when I first picked this passage some eight, nine, 10, 11 weeks ago, I wrote in there that um, I sort of thought God's answers weren't particularly satisfying. That's the way I wrote that. That was hubris on my part. That was conceit on my part to write such a comment down. Because now as I've studied it more and more and more, I think what I was doing was I was making the same sin that Job had made. I was getting God down into a, a box of some kind. And I needed to understand that God was answering Job on the grandness of the scale. The invitation there is for us is to be full of awe, to be awe-full. Bishop Karen was here about this time last year with her wife, um, and they walked around this building repeatedly and kept looking out the windows. It was a gorgeous day like today, and they kept looking out the windows and finding places in the windows, and they kept saying, is it always this beautiful every single day? And I went, yeah, yeah. They were full of awe about the creation, and I had just sort of taken it for granted. It was, yeah, I, I live here. It's, it's like that every day. Those mountains don't move anywhere. They were blessed in the fact that they were able to see the magnificence of this beauty. I don't ski as much as I used to, but when I did ski a lot, 
One of the fantastic things I used to enjoy about skiing was hopping off that lift and sliding down a little bit, turning back around, and then watching the expanse of the mountains above the clouds, above pollution, well, just watching the creation, just looking at the creation and just being in awe of how beautiful it was. It's just fantastic. That's what the invitation is for us here from this particular passage, is not to keep putting God into a box and making, trying to make God smaller and smaller and smaller, but rather to see God in a more vast, in a more open kind of setting. It affects everybody. Francis Collins was the director of the Human Genome Project. My son worked for Human Genome Sciences Incorporated in Rockville, Maryland for a while, and I would say, Chris, what do you do? Well, Dad, comma, and that's after the, after the comma was when my understanding went away. I have no idea what he was saying. But I'm confident somebody could understand it. But Francis Collins was the director of the Human Genome Project, and he was touched by God's creation, the expanse of God's creation. He was working as a doctor in North Carolina, and a lady was dying of pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer. They'd done all they could for her. But he just was continued to be impressed by the nature of her faith and how confident she was and what was going to happen to her, what was going to go on. And she would just cheer him up as to what was going on. And finally, one day, she said, tell me about your faith. And he says, well, I, I guess I don't have any. So he leaves the hospital, goes by a Methodist church there in North Carolina, stops in, knocks on the door, says, Pastor, can I talk to you? And they start talking about faith, and the pastor walks over and pulls down a dog-eared, highlighted copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and hands it to him and says, try to read this a little bit. And Collins, Dr. Collins, gradually and gradually and gradually and gradually went deeper and deeper and deeper. But he continued to resist. I just a reminder here, C.S. Lewis would say in 1929 that when he fell to his knees as a Christian, he would say he was the most reluctant Christian in all of England. My, I can relate because when I finally decided to come to God, I was certainly maybe not the most reluctant Christian in all of Germany, but I was up there. I was in the top five or so. And Collins is the same way. He's given this book to somebody who resists the gospel. And he would write in his book called The Language of God, it's about, it's about DNA, it's about DNA, The Language of God, he would say, I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God, and now I was being called to account. On a beautiful fall day as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered to Jesus Christ. How many of you were like, have had moments like that? 
many of you have had moments as you, you wander around the beauty of this creation, whether it's the mountains we have here or the beauty of life like in the desert? We sometimes think of the desert as a place devoid of life, and we are wrong. It's teeming with life. How often do we, do we go someplace and we just sort of start to take it all for granted? And then we have this moment where, like Bishop Karen and her wife, about how it is that they remind us the grandeur that exists all around us. We've somehow gotten into this place where we place God into a box. And we've gradually reduced our sense that it is the breathtaking overall transcendence of God that we ought to be talking about. This magnificence of God. Job lives out the story, be careful what you ask for, you just might get it. He wanted an audience with God, he wanted to have an encounter with God, and he gets it. And he seems to, at the end of all of this, walk away with a better, deeper, richer understanding of who God is. And God has revealed in this particular passage that I am beyond all understanding. I'm beyond all of it. Because there is an, an order here that you seem to think does not exist. And I'm here to tell you that it is. I have placed that order before you and over and over and over again. God asked the question. Can you see, can you see in this creation the magnificence of what it is that God has done? Hilltop is located in Sandy, Utah, 985 East, 10,600 South. Locals would say 106th. Our two worship services are at 9 o'clock and 10.30. Hope to see you this Sunday. God bless. Bye-bye.